Well, it has been a joy to be with you this weekend, and it seems like I just arrived, and now I'm preaching my last message. Uh, I wish that I had time to take you further in this series. We've been looking at the I Am Statements of Christ, of which there are seven. And at this point, we have looked at four, and today we shall, this morning, shall look at the fifth uh, I Am Statement. You can read for yourself the last two, uh, which will occur in John 14, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And in John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. So today, in our message, I want us to look at I am the resurrection and the life. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 11, John chapter 11, and we'll be especially, we will especially be looking at verses 25 and 26, but I want to give a sense of context, and I want to begin reading um, a little bit earlier in this setting. I want to begin reading in, in verse 17. Lazarus, you hear music going on? What's that? Uh, yeah, don't think so. Um, I was just hearing music in the background. Oh, it's next door? Is there another church meeting next door? Oh, Sunday school, okay. We ought to tell them to come to church. <laughs> Is it children's church? Oh, okay, all right, very good. All right, we're going to begin in verse 17. And um, Lazarus has died in Bethany, a very short distance from Jerusalem. And Jesus has intentionally not responded to the request that he come in order to perform a miracle and keep Lazarus alive. In fact, uh, Jesus has actually said, Lazarus is dead and I am glad. And that is the title of the sermon that Charles Haddon Spurgeon once preached, Lazarus is dead and I am glad. In fact, I'll begin reading in verse 14 just so you can see it in your own Bible. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead and I am glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning her brother, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went out to meet him. But, Martha, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha said, then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
Martha, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Death is an inescapable reality for every one of us should Jesus tarry. Wise is the person who does not live in denial of their approaching death. King Philip II of Macedon was the father of Alexander the Great. And lest King Philip II forget the pressing reality of death and the limited number of days that he had to be here upon the earth, he had a palace servant whose duty it was to approach him every morning with this greeting. King Philip, remember you are dying. Close quote. And so it is with you and with me. You are dying and I am dying. And it is only those who are prepared to die are prepared to live. Jim Elliott, the great missionary to the Aka Indians, once said, People have not learned to live who have not learned to die. And so as we look at this passage, there is a sense in which you and I need to be prepared to die. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, once remarked, Our people die well. You and I need to die well. And we need to live well. And we need the truth of what Jesus has to say here. As we look at verses 25 and 26, there are four things that I want you to note. Number one, who Jesus is. And number two, what Jesus requires. Number three, what Jesus promises. And number four, what Jesus asks. So let's begin in verse 25. First, who Jesus is. As verse 25 begins, Jesus makes one of the most astonishing claims that he has ever made. He claims to be God in human flesh who can raise the dead. And so in verse 25, he begins, I am. We've already discussed this, ego eime in the Greek, which is a claim to be God, the very God who spoke to Moses at the burning bush. There God gave a name for himself, I am who I am. And I want to revisit something of what we spoke of on Friday night that this represents, this name I am, before we even address the resurrection and the life. Jesus is claiming this divine name to himself and is claiming to be co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy 
spirit. He's more than a carpenter. He's more than a prophet. He's more than a good teacher. He is God in human flesh. Nicodemus said, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No, he was much more. He was God come to teach. And this speaks to the theological truth of what I mentioned on Friday night. And I want to revisit it very shortly on the aseity of God. Now, I misspelled it on Friday night because I was doing this off the top of my head. And it's a word that we don't normally use, right? I mean, how often do you use aseity in your daily language? Aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. I want to be on record here in Adelaide for saying it correctly, or spelling it correctly. Aseity. It comes from two Latin words. A, which means from. C, which means self. Aseity means out of one's self, from one's self. And it is the property by which a being exists in and of itself. Jesus is claiming that he possesses all life and everything about life is flowing from himself. Nothing is flowing into God or into Jesus. Everything is proceeding from God and from Jesus. Jesus is not dependent upon anything external, yet we are dependent entirely upon him. A city has two aspects, one positive, one negative. In the negative sense, this theological truth affirms that God is uncaused, that God is dependent on no other being for the source of his existence. And in the positive sense, aseity affirms that God is completely self-sufficient within himself. He is sufficient for his own existence. This means that God is self-sustaining, dependent upon no one and nothing outside of himself. That God was and is and will be forever. He is independent from his creation and sovereign over his creation. He is autonomous and independent unto himself. He is never increasing and he is never decreasing. And everything in the universe has proceeded from him, and everything is dependent upon God. That includes you, and that includes me. Let me quickly take you to a couple of verses that I think you will find interesting. Romans chapter 11 and verse, verse uh, 36. Many of you have had me sign some of my books during the breaks. And whenever I sign my name to the inside cover of a book that I've written, I sign it by my name, Stephen J. Lawson, and under that I put one Bible verse, which I think is the greatest verse in the entire Bible. It is Romans 11:36. It is the most all-inclusive, all-encompassing sentence in the entire Bible and in the entire universe. 
There is nothing that exists outside of Romans 11, verse 36. It is a systematic theology unto itself. Romans 11:36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. <laughs> There's nothing outside of that. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And it is only this theology that produces this doxology. It is only this doctrine that produces this devotion. Now you'll note how it begins. From him are all things. That is the aseity of God. That nothing is coming into him that would bear him up. Everything is proceeding from him, and he is holding up everything and supplying everything in the entire universe that there is. He's got the whole world in his hands. Galaxies are dripping out of his fingertips. The entirety of all that there is is from him. Even the devil, as Martin Luther said, is God's devil to carry out God's task here upon the earth. If you'll come to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I want you just to see this truth of the aseity of God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and in verse 6, we are introduced to this truth yet again in which we read, there is but one God the Father from whom are all things. And we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. And we exist through Him. This is all inseparably connected with the divine name I am who I am. And if you'll look at 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 12, you will see yet again this same truth. And in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 12, at the end of this verse we read, And all things originate from God. He is the architect of all that there is. He is the author of all that there is. He is the source of all that there is. He is the giver of all that there is. He is the first cause of all that there is. Everything is proceeding from himself. It's a staggering truth that is worthy of your meditation and your contemplation. How big is your God? The most important thing about you, A.W. Tozier once said, is what comes into your mind when you think of God. The entirety of your life, in one way or another, is the result of who you believe God to be. You tell me who God is, and I will tell you how you're living. Everything proceeds from the knowledge of God. That is why when John Calvin wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which remains the magnum opus 
from his pen and the, the greatest work to come from the Reformation 500 years ago. He begins the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which was addressed to the King of France to describe to him what true Christianity is. He begins with the knowledge of God and argues that there can be no knowledge even of self until there is first the knowledge of God. It is the knowledge of God that is the chief cornerstone. It is the plumb line by which all else is built upon and by which all else is measured. So as Jesus now makes this statement, I am, it is a statement of the aseity of God, that he is the God who has created all that there is. He is the God who is sovereign over all that there is. He is the God who has all authority in heaven and earth. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the king of providence. He is the one who is causing all things to work together for good. He is the one to whom all things are proceeding. He is the one who will be the judge on the last day. He is the one who will be the determiner of every man and every woman's eternal destiny. He is the one who will be the pleasure of saints throughout all the ages in heaven. And he will be the one in hell inflicting the wrath upon those who are damned. That's who Jesus is. So I, you can almost hear the grass growing outside right now. As the psalmist would say, Selah. Pause and meditate on the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of Jesus Christ. So come back to Romans 11 and verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am. I am everything you need. I am. He now says, I am the resurrection and the life. Please note the definite article, the, again, the resurrection and the life, meaning there is no resurrection except it be from Jesus Christ. The dead will always be dead apart from Jesus Christ. And he is the life. There is no life, whether physical or spiritual, apart from Jesus Christ. This is a, a claim of staggering proportions. When he says, I am the resurrection, he is saying that he possesses all authority which is another interesting Greek word, exousia, again meaning out of oneself, possessing all authority and all power over death and over the grave. He will say in the book of Revelation, I have the keys of death and Hades. No one enters the grave and no one leaves the grave apart from the one who holds the keys to the grave Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
No one dies apart from his appointed time. No one will be raised apart from his sovereign authority. He is totally, absolutely Lord over the grave. And when he says, I am the resurrection, this includes both physical resurrection and spiritual resurrection. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And then he says, and the life, which is to say, he himself is life, he himself possesses life, he himself gives life, he himself takes life. He has all life. When you die physically, the Lord doesn't actually take your life. He just stops giving it. This dual theme of resurrection and life has already been introduced to us in the Gospel of John. And I would like to just take you on a brief uh, walk through the opening chapters of the Gospel of John and remind you of what you already know. In John chapter 2 and In verse 18, the Jewish leaders said to Jesus, What sign do you show us as the authority for doing these things? He had just cleansed the temple with the sheer force of his personality and authority and convictions. And Jesus answered them in verse 19, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, it took 46 years to build this temple, referring to the second temple there in Jerusalem, and you will raise it up in three days? In other words, it took us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to destroy it and then build it in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. That is a first opening hint at his power and authority in resurrection. In chapter 5, John chapter 5, and beginning in verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, and remember that means what he is about to say, is of utmost importance, more important than other things he has to say. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. There's only one way to pass out of death into life, and that is to be raised from the dead. Then in verse 25, he begins again, truly, truly, I say to you, John 5:25, an hour is coming and now is. And that little phrase, and now is, is very important. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. He is not referring to the resurrection at the end of the age. He is referring to a present resurrection spiritually in the new birth. When one is born again, it is, it is represented as a spiritual resurrection that you and I were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sin, and God, by Jesus Christ, has raised us from the dead. That's what he is saying in verse 25. 
And then look at verse 26. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. How powerful is the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ that his voice is able to raise the dead. His voice at the end of the age will be able to raise every believer's body out of the grave and he will resurrect every unbeliever's body out of the grave. The unbeliever to stand at the judgment and give an account to him and for believers we will be raised and our soul and our spirit and our body will be reunited and we will live in a glorified body throughout all the ages to come that will be perfectly adapted for our new environment in heaven it will never grow weary it will never be tired it will be a body in which we will praise and worship and serve the lord forever and ever and ever and those who are raised unto a resurrection of of judgment will be also given a body perfectly adapted and suited for their new environment in hell in which they will be in the lake of fire, yet never perish. It will be a body in which they will experience intensified suffering throughout all of the ages to come, and yet being on fire, yet never being extinguished. How powerful is the Lord Jesus Christ to raise the dead. He is no fake faith healer. It's all in his hands. Come to John chapter 6. I must hasten. John chapter 6 and verse 39 This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given to me, and that is a reference to the elect, those who have been sovereignly chosen by God in eternity past and their salvation predestined to occur, they have been given to the Son in eternity past, and he says, all that he has given me, I lose nothing. That is the eternal security of the believer. And he says at the end of verse 39, but raise it up on the last day. That's how secure those who are chosen are. He has the authority to raise us spiritually to believe. He has authority to raise us physically at the end of the age to be in his very presence in heaven forever and ever. And the grave is subject to his supreme authority. If you would look at 
Verse 40, the next verse, he repeats it again. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. I love that he adds myself. I myself. This won't be delegated to anyone else. This won't be subcontracted out to the angels or to Moses or any prophets. No, Jesus will do this hands-on himself. It will be his voice that will raise the dead. If you would, look at verse 44. He says it again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The one who draws us to himself spiritually is the one who will raise us to himself physically on the last day. If you would, look at verse 54. He says it again. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, which is a reference not to the Lord's table, it is a reference to saving faith, to receive Jesus Christ like you would drink and eat, to receive Christ into your life. And he says at the end of verse 54, and I will raise him up on the last day. If that were not enough, look at verse 57. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, he who eats me will also live because of me. By this point, it should be completely obvious that your eternal destiny is in His hands. And where you will spend all eternity, whether heaven or in hell, will be decided by your relationship or lack of relationship to Jesus Christ. And I know in the United States, if someone wants to escape a court hearing, they can go hide in the Everglades. They can go hide on an island. They can do whatever to escape their court date. But on the last day when Jesus issues the call, whether you, your body is at the bottom of the ocean, whether you were burned to death, whether you are buried in a grave, whether you were eaten alive by a lion, when he issues that call, you will be raised to stand before him. And he alone has life, physical life and spiritual life. And he has already sovereignly ordained the number of days that you will live here upon this earth. Psalm 139 says, all of our days were written in his book when as yet there was not one of them. He has appointed the day of your physical birth. He has appointed the day already of your physical death. He has appointed what will occur in every day in between. He has appointed the day of the spiritual resurrection of all of the elect. And he makes us willing in the day of his power. And all whom he raises to believe in him 
will be held secure forever throughout all of the ages to come. This is who Jesus is. He's more than a carpenter. He's more than a teacher. He's more than a prophet. He is God in human flesh. Who possesses supreme authority over the grave and over life. And to make this more personal over your life and over your grave. Now second. We've seen who Jesus is. Second, what Jesus requires. Based upon who he is, he now issues this requirement. He who believes in me. The he refers to any man, any woman, who believes in Jesus Christ. To believe in Jesus Christ means far more than to believe about him. It means far more than to believe him. To believe in him literally means to believe into him. This little preposition in, I-N, is a Greek preposition, ice, E-I-S, Indicating that all saving faith is into Jesus Christ. Just as I must step into an airplane tomorrow morning at 5.30. So, I have stepped into Jesus Christ. And entirely trusted my soul to his saving care. It means to rely upon Christ. It means to be committed to Christ. And saving faith has three dimensions. And you need to be aware of all three dimensions. Any less is a non-saving faith. The first dimension of saving faith is knowledge. That you must know the truth. You must know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to boil it all down, you need to know two things. That you're a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. And that your only hope for eternal life is for you to entrust yourself to Him. But there must be more than that knowledge. Because there will be people in hell throughout all the ages to come who know that. Second, there must be conviction and persuasion that this is true. That this is not just a religious uh, fable, but that this is true and I am convinced of my, of my personal need for this saving gospel and then third, commitment, that I make a decisive commitment of my life to him by which I entrust all that I am to his saving, to his saving arms. This is what Jesus requires. 
He requires that you step out of the world, that you step out of the crowd as you live in this world, and that you be singularly, supremely devoted to Jesus Christ. That's what saving faith is. And you may know that you have exercised true saving faith if you obey his word. And if you persevere in following him. And if you follow him throughout the days of your life. This is what Jesus requires. Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Have you committed your life to Christ? Have you come to the place... Have you come to the place where you recognize and realize that you're a sinner and that the wages of sin is death and that the curse of the law is eternal death at the hands of God and that you have no hope but that Jesus Christ has come into this world to be born of a virgin, to live a sinless and perfect life, to die a substitutionary death upon the cross, to be raised from the dead, to be ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is no other hope. And there is no salvation in a church. There is no salvation in a cause. There is no salvation in a movement. There is no salvation in your good works. There is no salvation in baptism. There is no salvation in tithing. There is no salvation in in whatever type of morality you would try to ascend to. There is only salvation by committing your life to Jesus Christ. Have you believed? In Jesus Christ. I have seen hundreds of church members come to faith in Jesus Christ under my preaching. I would say 19 out of the 20, 19 out of 20 people, and there have been hundreds, have been church members of good standing who thought they were saved but who had never genuinely committed their life to Jesus Christ. And even among the Lord's twelve, there was one who had the devil's initials carved in his heart, who was so highly respected by the other disciples that they made him the treasurer and put him in charge of the money because he had such a sterling reputation. And yet he was the one who went out and hung himself and went to his own place after he betrayed the Lord for 29 pieces of silver. Have you been born again? Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Judas heard the greatest sermons ever preached. Jesus, I mean, Judas walked the dusty roads with Jesus. Judas heard the Lord pray. Judas, no doubt, himself prayed. Judas was involved in ministry. Judas was responsible for their money. Judas had a place of highest regard. And when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they didn't all stand up and point at Judas and say, we knew it all along. They said, is it me, Lord? Have you believed? In Jesus Christ. 
This is what Jesus requires. Third, what Jesus promises. And I want you to note this. In verse 25 and then at the end of verse 25, in the beginning of verse 26, the only way to understand what's going on here is to see that there are two resurrections of which he is speaking. Let me read it, and then I will, I trust, carefully explain it. In John chapter 11, at the end of verse 25, he says, He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone, at the beginning of verse 26, who lives and believes in me will never die. This could easily be somewhat confusing. What is Jesus saying? At the end of verse 25, he is referring to, a, to the physical resurrection. At the beginning of verse 26, he is referring to the spiritual resurrection. Notice, at the end of verse 25, he says, He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And when he says, even if he dies, he's referring to a physical death. And he is saying that the one who dies will never be any more alive than five seconds after they die. And they will immediately be with the Lord in heaven. There, there is no such thing as a soul sleep or purgatory or any halfway house, which are all just inventions of human imagination. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. And when you die, when I die, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, you will live. You will really live. You will finally live as you have never lived before. You will live in the presence of God the Father in heaven and before the Lamb upon His throne. This is the hope of every believer. And then at the end of the age, Jesus wants it all. And He even wants your body to be raised from the dead. And the body in which you are now living will be raised and resurrected. And it will be a glorified body. And there will be the reunion of your soul that has gone on to heaven with your body that will be raised out of the grave. And you will be sanctified and preserved forever, body, soul, and spirit. At the end of the age, the Bible says, For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the trumpet of God and the voice of the archangel. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So the end of verse 25 is referring to a physical resurrection. That even when you die... You will be alive forever with God, and your body will be raised at the end of the age. I wish I had time to talk to you about what your body is going to be like in heaven, but you're going to love it. Now, in verse 26, 
This now refers not to the physical resurrection, but to the spiritual resurrection. And lest there be any misunderstanding, when I say spiritual resurrection, I'm talking about the new birth, which comes under different metaphors. When you believe in Jesus Christ, it's sometimes portrayed as being born again. It is sometimes portrayed as becoming a new creation in Christ. It is sometimes portrayed as a spiritual resurrection. They all three are con conveying the same truth. So look at verse 26. And everyone who lives, and when he says lives, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Now, the only way to understand that is to realize he's not talking about a the fact that he's not saying that you'll never die physically. Lazarus just died physically. Jesus died physically. He's referring to the fact that when you believe in Jesus Christ, you will never again return to a state of spiritual death. You've heard it said, once saved, always saved. Once made alive, always made alive. And the life that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to us is a life that he will never stop giving. It is eternal life. It is a life that has a new quality, but it is a life that has an endless duration. And we will never die in the sense of being spiritually dead once he has made us alive in him. Let me put it to you this way. A believer will never become an unbeliever. Sometimes we wonder about someone who came to church, prayed a prayer, was baptized, uh, began to give appearance of following the Lord, and then the next thing you know, he's nowhere to be found, and he's not going to church anyplace else, or he's going to some false church under a false gospel, and we wonder what, what happened to him. Was he saved and then lost his salvation? No, the truth is, he was never saved to begin with. The faith that fizzles before the finish had a flaw from the first. It was a counterfeit conversion. It was a bogus belief. But those who are truly believers in Jesus Christ, this says well, they'll never die. Their faith will always be alive because it is a faith that Jesus Christ has given to them. Their faith will never ultimately implode. Doesn't mean we won't have struggles. Doesn't mean that our faith will not weaken at times. But it does mean that that faith will never go extinct.
Charles Haddon Spurgeon has said, Noah fell down many times in the ark, but he never once fell out of the ark. And you and I will stumble and fall in this world, but the Lord will retain us in his grip. And he will never let go of us. I remember when my twin boys were young and they wanted to cross the street and they didn't want me to hold their hand. They wanted to do it by themselves, but I wouldn't let go. And there would be times when they would jump off a curb and they would trip and fall and be headed down, but I had a hold of them and they would be swinging in midair until I would put their feet down. That's the way it is in our spiritual life. We may weaken our grip toward him, but he will never weaken his sovereign grip of us. So that is what he is saying here. That we will never die. Spiritually. We will always be alive in Christ. So fourth and finally, what Jesus asks at the end of verse 25. Jesus concludes these words by asking this important question. Do you believe this? It's a very specific question. Do you believe these specific truths? Jesus is asking, do you believe I am God in human flesh? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that I am sovereign over heaven and hell and your eternal destiny? Do you believe that everything is proceeding from me and that everything is through me and to me? Do you believe that I have created you for myself? Do you believe that at the end of your life, I have the authority to raise you from the dead, to stand before me. Do you believe that I have life within myself to give to you, not just physical life, but spiritual life? Do you believe that if I give to you spiritual life, you will never die? Do you believe this? That is the question. And your eternal destiny is at stake. I assume that most here today, being in this wonderful church that preaches the Word of God, that you have believed this. And the very faith with which you have believed this is a faith that God has given to you, and even this is a work of His grace. Even your faith has proceeded from Christ. Even your repentance has proceeded from Christ. Even the circumstances surrounding your conversion has proceeded from Christ. Even the conviction of sin to reveal your need for salvation has proceeded from Christ. Even the drawing of the Holy Spirit to, to draw you to Christ has come from Christ Himself. It's all come from Him. Every good gift, every perfect gift has proceeded down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation. And it has come from the Father through the Son and applied by the Spirit in your life. 
And if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, I want you to know that this very moment, you are in a place where you have heard the truth concerning salvation. You have heard what is required of you, which is to simply believe in Jesus Christ. You have heard that it is far more than an intellectual assent to some facts. It is far more than sensing your need. You have heard today the truth that it necessitates the commitment of your life to Jesus Christ, that you must totally, completely rely upon his sinless life and his substitutionary death and his bodily resurrection and his present ascension at the right hand of God the Father. You have heard this today. And now the decision is yours. Do you believe this? Will you commit your life to Jesus Christ? Today, the gates of paradise are swung wide open. And the Savior is waiting to receive sinners unto himself. He is the friend of sinners. He has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He has come not for those who are well, but for those who are sick. He is a physician, the great physician, who still makes house calls. And he receives sinners to himself. Tell him what a sinner you are. He has not died for good people. He does not save good people. Because there are no good people. He saves only sinners. Filthy, rotten, defiled, corrupt, twisted sinners. And he loves to gather them in. And he loves to bestow his saving grace upon those who have been ruined by sin and who are in desperate need of his forgiveness and his righteousness and his saving grace. So if you've never believed upon Christ, I urge you to run to Christ, to flee to Christ. And he will gather you in as a mother hen gathers in her chicks. And his saving arms will take you in and embrace you. And he will crown you with his, with his love, with his care, with his forgiveness. He will wash away all of your sins. And he will clothe you with his perfect righteousness. And he has gone ahead of us, and he is preparing a place for us in heaven. If he created everything out of nothing in six days, how great must heaven be that he's gone to prepare a place for us for 2,000 years? The best is yet to come if you're a Christian. Believe upon him, and you'll be saved. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, into this world. The mighty Savior, Jesus Christ. Fully God. I am. The one who is the resurrection and the life. Father, thank you that in Christ we have everything that we need. And without Christ we have nothing. 
thank you that you have given to us the treasures of wisdom and understanding in Christ and the wealth of your forgiveness and the abundance of your righteousness all in Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.